And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schreiner, Gary K. Wolf, with very special guest, Neil Clark on the Coot Street Podcast! Anyway. And we'll start off by congratulating Neil on receiving the Solstice Award. We were talking just before we went on whether you're the youngest person ever to receive it, and we can check that out. But anyway, it's well-deserved, and it's a good thing you're not too doddering to accept it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Will you be doddering over to Los Angeles to, to, to receive the award? I'll do my best. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, the ostensible reason for our conversation is that we both spend a lot of time thinking and talking about the short fiction field. We are right at that time of the year when everything has either been summarized or is finishing being summarized. My best of the year is handed in and complete. I know you were just saying a moment ago that the best science fiction of the year, volume four, is pretty much complete. You've chosen your stories and you're working on your introduction. And the Locus annual recommended reading list and year in review issue has just dropped right now. And so I'm curious as to what you think the state of the short short fiction field in 2018-19 is and how healthy and robust it is. Well, I think there, there's um, two pieces to it. You've got the types of stories and, and the, the variety of stories that are being published, the quality of stories, and then you have the actual business itself and how healthy that is. And I think – we are in a really great time for uh, quality and variety of, of stories. We're seeing more stories coming in from different corners of the community uh, than we have in a very long time. And, you know, I'm, I'm heavily involved in, in a lot of translation work and things like that. So it's sort of refreshing to see that getting some positive attention. Um, but then on the business side, we have sort of a disconnect. We've got um, uh, not enough people uh, paying for the fiction to keep the mm. industry healthy. Uh, you know, a lot of people will will look at uh, you know, oh, you know, the print magazines. There, you know, the the number of copies of print issues is declining, but the number of copies of ebook issues for them is increasing, uh, and and so they ha they have a nice wash. But even if they were only selling print. They'd still be making more than every online magazine out there. Really? Yeah. Uh, less than 10% of people who read an online magazine support it in some way, financially. Yeah. We, 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 I mean, so, so really it comes down to, for, from the magazine publisher's point of view, if you're – or short fiction publishers may be a more useful way of putting it. The short fiction publisher's experience online is one of great you know, uh, verbal acceptance and support but not a lot of practical support. I mean, I was looking at the, the statistics for, for the magazines, the print magazines that are classified as professional, of which probably there really are only three, in my opinion. We could quibble about four or five, but really fundamentally three. Asimov's Analog and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Uh, of Analog, I mean, you could look at it and say it's still predominantly a print magazine with a strong digital support base for its subscriptions, but still more print than digital. Asimov's quite interesting, I think, is the reverse, has a much stronger digital base than print. And then you have FNSF where there's a tendency to say that its subscription base is going down, but we really don't know because they can't provide any data on digital. And all of the information that we have for the other two is based on print plus digital. So, you know, but they, even, they're still sitting around, let's say nominally 15 to 20,000 copies per month. And as you say, that gives them the ability to 
to, to actually purchase the fiction that they're, they're doing, to pay the staff who are working for them, all that kind of thing. That seems to me, I mean, when we talk about professional, which is one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot, that seems to be the thing that we don't value, the fact that the actual organization who's producing the fiction is on some level, has substance and is professional. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, range into what you call professional. There's, you know, obviously the, the treating the authors professionally, there's a wide <clears throat> range of uh, mm-hmm. magazines that are doing that and doing that very well. Um, whether or not uh, they are successful businesses or hobbies or nonprofits, I mean, all three of those exist. Plus, then you've got something like, like Tor.com, which is sort of a, a branch off of a, a of a very successful publisher. Um, so that model is, is sort of, it was a little bit more common. You had Subterranean Magazine years ago and Bain's Universe and, and Tor.com is the only one that seems to have come out of that model and, and, and survived and made a good show of it. Um, well, certainly but, I mean, Tor.com yeah. is still funded out of a marketing and development budget, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. And obviously Tor itself is robust and Tor.com publishing because of its, accompanying novella line is quite robust in many ways. But, you know, you'd have to notice that they reduced the amount of fiction they published in 2018 by 20, 25%. You know, so that that sort of impacts on this whole question of how healthy things are. I mean, if Tor publishing less, I know that the third alternative and Interzone dropped an issue this year. That, that's not a good sign, even though there were other reasons for it. They weren't necessarily health or robustness. But it seems like when you look around, I mean, what I would like to see is publishers who are actually well set up to do business, as you're saying. But I don't see that. And I, I sometimes I think this whole question of professional, I was thinking about it when not terribly re- long ago the Science Fiction Writers of America announced that they were increasing their professional, right, you know, the, the payment rate they consider to be professional. I thought, well, what, I mean, other than it's important that writers are properly recompensed, what does professional even mean anymore? I mean, is it a term we need to set aside so that we can get past that idea that doing something on a non-payment basis, if you like, is still valid? I mean, I think that there are people who are who produce uh, semi-professional or whatever productions that are offended when the, the work that they're Describe you know, that, that they're producing is described as being not professional. No, oh, I can I can see why because it, it's like I said that that word is sort of loaded. Sifwa doesn't even use the word professional; they use the word qualifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you know that's that's one of those things where it's it they even recognize that you know honestly six cents a word wasn't professional. Eight cents a word is not professional, but it's it's an indicator of what the market can sustain. Um, or at least their their take on it, and uh, you know what would be fair based on that for an author. Um, is, is there a kind of hierarchy uh, between professional uh, professional writers? I mean, uh, people who think that they make a living writing. If you go back to the fifties, people would have to sell a hundred short stories a year to make a living, obviously. Uh, but there's the prestige market also, and if you look at the short fiction market outside of genre. It's all unprofessional. It's all tiny issues of tiny magazines uh, that uh, that basically often you get paid in issues. And yet, if you look at the issue uh, at the annual uh, Best American Short Stories, not 
not J.J. Adams series, but the best American short stories, they tend to come from these small, non-paying venues. My question is, is there enough of a trade-off for that kind of prestige against actually getting money for your work? <laughs> well, the, the the literary fiction side of the world is very different. I, I had the uh, privilege of being at a, uh, one of the, the guest speakers at a, a conference in Houston a few years ago, uh, Houston Write Fest, and it's something that sort of pulls the literary side and the science fiction uh-huh. side together. And we were having these wonderful conversations that I have never had anywhere else <laughs> because, the uh, you know, talking to the editors because they'll charge submission fees. Oh, yeah. And, it, and, and that is obscene in the science fiction community. So we had these conversations. Nobody was being judgy. But mm. uh, I, basically, we were having conversations with authors saying, OK, you can expect this over here. But if you see that over on the science fiction side, run. <laughs> you know, this, this yeah. is, <laughs> um, but the, you know, so they're 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 working in a different world. Uh, they have uh, a different size readership than we do. I mean, we were talking about numbers, and uh, a number of them, you know, wish they had the the luxuries that we have in science fiction. So it's kind of kind of nice when you talk to people like the, to give you some perspective on where you are. I mean, we could be far worse. No, we well, could be I, a lot. Yeah, we could be a lot better, though. Um, a couple. So, of, uh, go ahead, finish. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. I, and I think some of that might be. And I get criticism for saying this, but I think the market is a little oversaturated at the moment uh, for the number of people who are willing to pay for it. Um, yeah. Based on your reading, to sort of go back to where we started, if you like, the health of the written form of science fiction and fantasy. Do you think both forms are doing? equally well at short length because it's my observation that there is more fantasy or fantasy varied short fiction being published than science fiction at the moment. Yeah, I noticed uh, some of the markets during during my reading this year uh, that you know, from last year to this year, they leaned a little bit more fantasy, or at least the higher quality stories they had leaned more fantasy than science fiction. And of course, that didn't really help me working on a science fiction only volume. <laughs> um, but it explains why some of them might not be as well represented. And actually, this is a conversation we had when you announced uh, your table of contents. The same thing happened with mine is that there's a, a, a wider representation of markets, um, which is unusual. Uh, and that's that can be perceived as a very good sign in that, um, you know, great stories are coming from different um, uh, corners of the, of the field right now. Um, but it can also say that the great, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's um, uh, the that the old powerhouses are sort of losing their uh, their their um, their their standing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. I think something else has happened. I think, and this is probably, yeah, controversial. I think that uh, that, say, Gardner Dozois, as wonderful as an editor as he was, at the time he was running Asimov's, had an easier job than an editor today. Had an easier job to put together a a, a central, well-regarded magazine. So did uh, Ed Furman, and they had an easier job because there were fewer markets, and so all of the top work was filtered automatically by default through two or three places. Now it's scattered everywhere. And there are all kinds of reasons for going to those markets. And they, they're not the same. I mean, if you talk to a writer who was you know, really busy in the mid-80s, they'll say, 
Does Waz Asimov's was the place to go. You know, there are people who say, you know, FNSF, you know, Ed Furman's FNSF was the New Yorker of the science fiction field. I had to be published there. Now it's completely different. And there's no way, whether you should or not, to um, change that filtering. Now it goes everywhere. Nobody gets that sort of exclusive relationship with a writer or group of writers that makes them appear the dominant voice in the field. Mm-hmm. And that's more or less, uh, you know, we're we're on the same page there because that's what what I was saying is it's it's sort of spreading out and it's spreading out for a, a variety of reasons. Now, some of it uh, has to do with um, the awards. To be blunt, uh, mm-hmm. a lot a lot of if you look at the last few years, they've gone very heavily towards the online markets. Uh, that's not because that's where all of the best stories are. Um, you know, ha- having having done years best for last four years, and and you for much longer, um, there's a balance, and we're not seeing that balance in the awards anymore. Uh, is that simply because it's easier to read a story for free than it is to pay for one? It is quite uh, quite likely part of the problem that the the walls of having to pay something or the walls of having to order something um, are are uh, uh, changing. Voting habits. I think that we've also got a second factor that's playing into this, and that's the post-puppy increase in voters, and that mm. the people who came in off of that probably read more heavily from online sources to start with. And there's too many markets for them to read everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a third one, third point which you yourself made to me a couple of years ago, which is incredibly compelling, and that helps explain the change in how. Awards are stories are getting awards, and that is shareability. Social media, you know, a, a story that gets that appears in a, a, a collection or an anthology can't readily be shared on the spot. You can link to buy the book. Quite often, you, it's actually not immediately easy to share a link to the issue of a magazine to buy. Never mind to the actual story. Whereas if a story is published online, you can immediately share it. You, quite often, the websites themselves have sharing tools on those pages, so you can be sure to share them, the story that you've read and loved. So people hear about it more readily, you know. And th- that's why, I mean, I mean, I think this, this is, in fact, the sole reason why uh, online markets are dominating awards in f- 2015 to now, you know. Well, you also have the the fact that most every online market has online archives, so it's not just the shareability. Mm-hmm. Like with a print magazine, it goes off the shelf in a month. You have to yeah. order the back issue, or had to have been a subscriber and had the issue still. So it, it that's that's an added disadvantage uh, in terms of of pass along. I'm curious actually as, as to what you think, Neil, about the value to a writer of an online archive. Do you think that a, I mean, when we talk about the health of the field, there's the structural health of it from the point of view of publishers and whether they're robust enough to survive. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. Then there's, is it artistically healthy? And then is it a viable thing for a writer to, to for a person to take part on as a career, you know, to decide I wish to be a professional writer, do that full time. Do things like archives help the writer or do they actually make their work less resaleable? Um, I don't know. I've never kept from buying a reprint from a reprint for a reprint anthology I've worked on just because the story is online. Um, it, it's a, a different audience. There, being in an archive, you need to know you're looking for the story. 
Uh, it's quite often perceived as a value by the authors because they can use it to link uh, from their own website. Hey, look at this story that I've done or here's some of my back catalog. Um, I think in the over 12 years I've been doing this, I've had one author request their story be removed from the archive. And it was because their agent was under the mistaken impression that she wouldn't be able to sell it to reprint anthologies or a collection, uh, which is not true. No. The only confusion I've ever had in my 20 years doing this nearly is I've had author, an author who was selling a universe, a, a franchise to television, and they were concerned about having control of all the variations of each of the parts of that universe, one of which was in a story that was in a book of mine and they wanted to shut down reprinting of it. Um, where do you think a, a, a reader today is best advised to go looking for the best in short fiction? Oh, that, that you know, that's... Or, or in fact, can, actually, in fairness, as the editor of Clark's World, would you rather not say... <laughs> well, no, I, I don't think there's a single market that that they should be going to. Because everybody's got slightly different tastes, so it's a matter of finding the editor or the market that that best or is most compatible with you. Uh, in the past, which is kind of funny now that I'm at editing, I used to recommend that people pick up a year's best anthology, uh -huh. uh, and you know it doesn't matter who edited it. You know, go to the library if you can't afford it. You know, go check it out. Read the, read the stories, pick the ones you like the most, and look at the back and see where they were published. Uh, you know, they might have come from an anthology. Well, if that anthology had two or three stories that, that you liked, maybe you'd like the rest of them. Uh, same thing with a magazine. Uh, so, and most people who read a magazine tend to keep reading it if they're enjoying the stories that that particular editor takes. There's a certain amount of trust that builds over time. And, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why an author would submit to those markets is to to sort of uh, 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 grab a piece of that audi existing audience and make it some of their own. Uh, I guess a question I have um, when we talk about what you're gaining and what you're losing. I mean, it's, it's clear that there was a period of time. Um, and Jonathan, you mentioned it when Gardner was editing Asimov's, when there were a half dozen editors that basically ran the short fiction market in science fiction and fantasy. And they were by and large, well, they were pretty much all white, but male or female, they were editors who had grown up reading the same sorts of things, which tended to keep the field a coherent, possibly a little bit better business model, but at the cost of diversity. Mm -hmm. So when you have all these different markets, uh, you're you're losing possible financial viability, but aren't you gaining a huge amount of diversity among editors and writers? Uh, um, certainly amongst the editors. Um, yeah. it, I'm, I'm not certain that, that, uh, uh, that, that it, it was the sole problem. Okay. Uh, I think there's been a lot of things that have opened, like digital submissions has has a tremendous impact on opening up American markets to yeah. international submissions, for example. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of factors that that play into it. Whether or not you know you know considering how poorly it pays, whether or not you have the luxury of of spending your time doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's there's economic things that go into it. So you know. It's there. There's so many different factors. It's it's 
you know, that it's kind of hard to put a finger on a specific one, but it's definitely rooted in the digital ecosystem that has made yeah. this possible because it's lowered the bar to entry uh, for submissions and publishing. Uh, and you see the same thing in self-publishing as well. Does right. self-publishing even matter anymore as a, as a distinction, do you think? I call myself a self-published editor <laughs> uh, yeah, because I am the publisher for Clark's World. I've, I've actually uh, uh, – I have a publishing company that is just me. Uh, so you know that, that is very much the same as some of my friends that are doing self-publishing. Uh, so you know, I, I don't do it to, to, to belittle what, what they do. I, say, I, I, I try to say you know, they're no better or worse. Uh, you know, we, we all sort of stand on the same uh, playing field. We've got the same potential for an audience. Uh, I think it's great what's happened in the field. It's made it more difficult to find things, I think. Um, uh, but And it's turned Amazon in some ways into a giant slush pile. Uh, but there's um, uh, some great stuff that's come out of this this change in the industry. And you have major writers turning to self-publishing. Uh, for with with fairly good results in many cases, I, I, I gather. Um, but the, but those are people who have a network. They we, we know that their stories are going to be, if not workshop, they've got their beta readers and that sort of thing. That seems to me is is different from the kind of self publishing that, for example, my students always wanted to do. And and, and my only response to them was, I'll read your. I, I don't want to read your story online unless somebody besides you has read it. Even if your mom likes it, somebody besides you likes the book, whether was, then maybe I'll look at it. But yeah, okay, Neil, if the democratization of publishing has led to a lot of publishing outlets coming into existence that aren't necessarily of a solid business background. Hmm. If that's a structural issue for the field at large, a risk, and I feel like it's a risk to the field, do you see a contraction coming? Do you see, or do you think this is something that's going to just basically continue on indefinitely? Well, there's only so long that people can go doing something without earning a living from it. Mm -hmm. Life get, happens, gets in the way, and that's going to take out some markets. Some people are going to get frustrated. The thing is that I've been in uh, the online market now, you know, you know, 12, 13 years, and and I was reading online fiction before that. Uh, and we're actually in, the, the good thing is that we're in better shape than we have been at any given time. The bad thing is that we're not healthy yet. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people, uh, you know, if you look back to 2006 when we started, almost every other magazine that started around then didn't make it. And there were a large number of, of things that were just popping up and, and falling over uh, for a variety of reasons. You had um, – the reason we, we jumped in was uh, sci-fiction when, mm -hmm. when they got shut down. Um, you know, there was an amazing market that the model couldn't, uh, couldn't work. The company didn't see the value in it. Um, but is, so, that, is so, that a flaw in, in – in the market that we have, or is it actually an inherent characteristic of any market like this? Because what you're talking about are businesses that are small enough to be dependent on individuals, whether they are robustly financial or not. 
you know. Um, Science fiction was actually dependent on the, was a larger company. But if you look around at a lot of the magazines that have been produ- produced that have come and gone over the last 20 years, whether they be subterranean, which were basically one guy and his background company, or whether, whether it's Clark's World, where it's basically one guy and the people he's working with, or whether it's Lightspeed and one guy and the people he's working with, doesn't it come down to, you know, sort of, there will be a life cycle because there's a life cycle in the energy that an editor-publisher has to bring to it. And, and that's, that's, that's natural. Right. And that kind of trend has to be expected. The test will be how many of these survive past their, the, the, the editor that's had them. Now, we have right. one case online that's, that's survived multiple editors, uh, uh, Strange Horizons. Yeah. Uh, which you know was was founded by one group and has continued and changed hands a few times, but it's still that same organization. Still, uh, you can see the evolution in, in the the magazine. So it's 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 survived that. The question is whether or not any of the for profit magazines can can continue that. Um, you know, I I had a, a scare you know six seven years ago, yeah. uh, and. And one of the things that I was asked afterwards was what was going to happen to the magazine. Uh, and they meant it in the nicest possible way. <laughs> but um, there is actually a disaster plan now. Uh, if something in case of emergency break glass, here's how it runs. And a <laughs> list of names of who, who my wife can talk to. And, and so that, it, you know, it's, now obviously there'll need to be some time between, but uh, you know, the, there's this sort of planning that you would do for a normal business that, that most of us don't think about in this field yet. Um, and uh, I think it's still because we're it, – in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly young industry. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in terms of internet years, it's a dinosaur. But in, ter- but in terms yeah. of practical, uh, it, it doesn't have uh, that, that experience. We're still very much that, that first and maybe second wave uh, of – Viable. Yeah. Uh, I guess also projects. some of the professional churn is invisible, isn't it? I mean, Analog and Asimov's changed hands multiple times over the last 30 years. Well, several times over the last 30 years. And that's not something that's been particularly visible to anybody who you know, deals with a magazine. It doesn't close because of Gardner retiring or at someday eventually, no time soon, Sheila retiring, nor does it stop because Penny Press stopped publishing it and so-and-so picked it up. You know, these things seem to have some kind of robustness. Whereas, if it's a, I guess a, a Jonathan Strawn magazine, you know, if it's Strawn's world, then it's all me, <laughs> right? And it, yeah. it, well, I mean, and how invested I am in making it continue. I mean, are you invested oh, yeah. in seeing Clark's world continue into the future? Do you think? Well, we're actually, you know, we're at the point where our business model has become much more viable. Uh, you know. Somewhere along the line, after after having the heart attack, I was sort of like, "Oh, I, I really should be making. I should have prioritized paying myself <laughs> a little bit more, um, uh, because you know all of these things sort of sort of play into being viable." Um, and I think a lot of us who started doing this came in with the idea that we we wanted we were putting the authors first, and you know most of them and. That mm-hmm. that's that's noble, but you're not putting the authors first if you go out of business. Uh, and I think that's that the the important thing to to is uh, is that you want to be be fair and true to your to your authors, but you also want to make sure that there's a future home for them uh, at your magazine. 
and and that can't happen if you go under. Uh, so you know, I've tried to be a little bit more uh, smart about that, and it's but it's like turning a battleship, and we've got a, a an industry problem where we've sort of devalued short fiction. Uh, not just not just free, and I know I've contributed to this problem, so I, I freely accept my responsibility in this. Um, but we also um, look at what we charge for for digital editions of a magazine. We only on the average there's two ninety nine, one ninety nine a month, which mm-hmm. is ridiculously low. And if that was three ninety nine and two ninety nine a month, you know how much more healthy those markets would be. Um, but everybody's a little bit nervous about raising it that dollar because they're afraid people will freak out. Isn't some of that, though, dictated, dictated by, by Amazon, though? No. Because that was the impression um, I was given at one point, that Amazon were for, dictating the, the prices you could, you could charge. They, okay, so the, the disconnect is, is the um, – everyone – Thinks that because the two ninety nine for ebooks to nine ninety nine for ebooks, yeah. uh, Amazon subscription program KPP uh, Kindle Publishing for periodicals does not follow those rules. Um, oh. It is the same rate uh, you set your price, and it and it goes from there. So any one of us uh, that are offering a, a subscription on Amazon could tomorrow go into our system, change the price. And and increase it, but we're all terrified of the response we would get. Um, and I've had this discussion with a few with a few other editors, and um, and we're not trying to price fix or anything here. It's just one of those things that we we uh, we talk about periodically in terms of you know how 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 are things going? We're not we know what each other are publishing, but. We don't know how things are going. Is, is part of this educating the readership, though? I mean, you've got a readership which grew up on iTunes where everything is free for 99 you know, uh, yeah. and, and, and the notion that uh, these authors – that somehow not paying for fiction means an author isn't getting paid for it. Do you have a generation of people who just don't feel they need to pay for anything that they read online? I, I think there's a certain uh, segment of the community that doesn't – feel they need to and there's a certain section of the community that can't and that's one well, of that's the reasons true. we offer it that way is because we don't want to uh, cut those people off we you know we want right. to bring more people in um i think part of uh, the problem uh as well is when you have a new market enter the field a lot of the times they don't know how to um, bring new readers in mm-hmm. Be- um so that so they they don't end up adding to the pool they end up pulling from the pool uh, and and that can be a problem. Um, personally, I, my big crusade the last few years is the future is international, and that's mm-hmm. that we we're we're in a digital age. We have to stop thinking about our magazines as an American magazine or you know or this region's magazine or whatever. We have authors coming from all over the world. We can be read from all over the world. We're international publications. We should start um, working that way and try and trying to uh, um, not only draw new readers in from our regular domestic markets, but from more around the world. And we've been seeing significant improvements in that over the last two, three years. Well, one of my questions about that, since and you've certainly been doing a lot with, with Chinese science fiction, I've got two anthologies in front of me. One is Ken Liu's new anthology, and the other is this uh, thing from Columbia University Press. And I know one of the problems with translated novels was always, again, the business model. You have to pay a translator and you have to pay the author, and pretty soon you're cutting into your profits. How does that work with short fiction? 
Well, it 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 actually translators tend to be public, uh, uh, paid more than the authors. Uh, <laughs> At oh, yeah, rate, I, I, a per I, I, word rate. So that's right. that's one of the things that makes it very difficult. Now, uh, in my case, I, I'm uh, I was doing a few here and there, um, but then we ended up being approached by a company in China called Storycom, and they're uh-huh. they're paying for the translation side. We're paying for the story side. Cool. And um, I just received a grant from another country to do that. For nine stories translated, for, I can't say which language it is yet because the ink isn't dry on the on the uh, uh, the paperwork. But um, next year we'll have, or this year we'll have nine stories translated from uh, another language uh, that isn't Chinese. Cool. Uh, and we're hoping to do more things like that. While there's not much in the way of grants here, it turns out that there's actually a lot more uh, opportunities overseas, and that's something we're we're trying to do more work on. Uh, moving forward, that sounds exciting. Unless, unless somebody slaps tariffs on Chinese science fiction, <laughs> well, that'll be interesting how they try to. I wonder if the tariff will be per word. <laughs> right. How how does all of this impact on putting together a a monthly issue then? Because uh, for most people, the monthly issue they see is what appears on the website in the first few days of the new month. How does it come with the subscriber side of it, putting together? a discrete digital issue and presumably in some cases a print issue. Yeah. Well, in our case, we released the entire issue at the start of the month. And some of the other magazines, they might dribble the content out over a month or over two months. Um, but they always have that content at the start, and most of them will release the ebook on a certain date regularly every month because we're creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the the uh, subscriptions need to be on a certain day. Amazon insists on it. Uh, so if you're in their subscription program, they frown upon being late. So we just plan accordingly. And with the translations, it's just planned further out because any number of things can go wrong. And you might notice every now and then we don't publish a translation. And that's because we were not happy with you know, the amount of time it was taking to, to produce one. We don't want to rush the translator. We want the story done right. So we'll skip a month and yeah. move on to the next. Um, so it's a matter of prioritizing the quality over over uh, being too rigid on the schedule. Sure. How price elastic do you think readers are for short fiction? I mean, has any work been done on trying to work out just how tolerant of a price increase people would be, particularly at a time when there is a large, I mean, for want of a better way of describing it, social justice, social conscious element to supporting stuff. People are willing to support Patreons and all this other kind of stuff and in all kinds of other situations. So what about here? I mean, you were talking about it a moment ago, but do you have a feel for how tolerant people would be of price increase? I did a survey, I think it was two years ago, and at that time, it was not very receptive. Mm. However, uh, I think you know, part of the thing is that you have to make the case for that. Uh, and, and as a field, we haven't. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons why I've been talking with other editors and, and trying to get their, their spin on this uh, is to, to see whether or not you know, this is something we should be doing because we, we all feel this way if we do, um, or if this is something that is just I'm in my imagination. Um, so, you know, there, there's uh, what that first survey told me was we weren't, uh, we weren't uh, making our case. 
and I think and I think um, you got a couple things like the 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 rate increases from from CIFA going from six to eight cents mm. a word helps justify things um, and a number of other issues out there like anybody who's doing print the constant increases in uh, U.S. Postal Service fees. Um, I mean, that's what was one of the driving things behind uh, all the, the print print magazines going to bi-monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you've got all of these factors in, and that can only buy you so much time, the cost economies of, of combining like that. So, uh, um, you know, all of these issues are going to catch up with us. It's just a matter of, of uh, when, and I think it's going to be soon. Since we really should kind of find a, an end point to this, let me ask you a couple of things. First, do you think it'd be fair to say that it's your feeling that we're in good artistic shape, not the shape we should be in on a business level, but getting better, and that it's fair to be cautiously op- optimistic about the state of the short fiction field generally? I, I think I think that is a, a fair assessment. I mean, we're. Uh, I know some people like to say it's a golden age, and that's because they're only looking at the author's side. And I think yeah. you can't you can't say it's a golden age when you're in it. Golden age, you you look back on in something right. and say it. Um, but I think that um, we have a tremendous amount of potential in the field right now, um, uh, yeah, on the business side, and and that uh, a wealth of talent on the writing side. It's just a matter of, of getting it, getting our acts together and, and uh, convincing more of our, our audiences to, to, uh, to take the ride with us. And since I'm sure our listeners would want to, us to ask you this, and it's very unfair since we didn't ask you to put this together, who, do you, looking back on 2018, do you think had a particularly good year as a short science fiction writer? Oh, um, well, you know, one of, one of the things that I was trying to figure out, I know Gardner used to make note that Rich Larson was one of the most productive. Stories, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. But he wasn't this year. Um, and I was trying to figure out who it is. And there's uh, an author, D.A. Jaolin Spires, that we've published a few times, but she is almost everywhere. Uh, in, as I was doing my reading, I kept finding her turn up. I think she might be the one who this year took that mantle and there were a lot of really good stories by her. Um, so she can keep up that pace and, and that, that quality. I think she's somebody who's, you know, people, more people should be reading and, and, and watching. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you very much for making time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And good luck with the best science fiction and fantasy of the year volume four, which will be out in July. Yes. yes. July. Okay. Well, until then, Thank you.